Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Well, please be seated. Good morning. So as most of you know, I recently returned from Pakistan where I was visiting some mission partners and Abe Becker came with me also. And we began, first of all, in Karachi, which is a huge city, 22 million people. It's a massive port on the southern coast of Pakistan. And there we visited our good friend, Bishop Mushtaq, who many of you have met already. He's preached here a couple of times already over the years. And Mushtaq is a man who heads up a church planting network of 60 or so churches and also oversees ARC Pakistan. That's the Association of Related Churches in Pakistan, which is an organization that is seeking to do something that is much needed. It's seeking to unite the church in Pakistan for the sake of the gospel. Well, I was also blessed to be a part of their annual conference of 450 pastors from all over Pakistan coming together. After those first few days, I then flew north and I visited with Bishop Leo of the Diocese of Multan, which is a large diocese. Um, it's in an area called Punjab in the heart of Pakistan. And his diocese has about 70 churches and is part of the Church of Pakistan. That's what it's called, the Church of Pakistan, which is this 50-year-old, mostly successful experiment of bringing four different church denominations into the same structure, Anglicans, Presbyterians, United Methodists, and Lutherans. As you can imagine, that's no easy task, but they have managed to do that for 50 years now and to remain united. And you know, in both these places, I was greeted with incredible hospitality. I was given gifts, flowers, bunches of flowers everywhere I went, Lay, things that look like lays, these beautiful things put around your neck. I was given books, I was given pens, I was given crosses, candies, shawls, miniature cricket bats, that was a big hit with me, uh, well, hats, so many hats, I was given hats, and the fanciest of shoes you've ever seen with toes that curl up just like that, it was beautiful. And then on my trip to Multan, they made a special banner for me with my name on, greeting me and welcoming me. And that was for a meeting that I had with the clergy and the Darson staff and some of their families, where they express, expressed gratitude for all of you, all of you who gave money during those first few months of the pandemic to support them and give them a monthly stipend so they could afford to buy food for their families during that time. They were so thankful to each one of you. We were also constantly being offered bottled water because you don't tend to drink the tap water there, as well as chai, which is just a hot, sweet tea. And then um, fantastic Pakistani cuisine everywhere we went for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then even better than this, in one place, I was given a shoulder massage as I was having a meeting with someone, sat down on the roof under the stars. It was beautiful. And that's pretty traditional there. That happens. Bishop Mushtaq was getting one as well. It was just one of the pastors was coming around and giving people shoulder massages. I love that. And I'm hoping that can become a tradition here as well. <laughs> And I know that Abe also experienced this kind of greeting in Lahore, right, Abe? Yeah, just incredible, the hospitality they show. And he got to meet with a new mission partner and take part in preaching, teaching, and baptizing new believers. But you know, for a British guy who grew up in a small town in England, pretty small, my wife always tells me it's bigger than you think, but uh, pretty small, and who ministers in a pretty small island right now, and, you know, I'm not particularly one who likes the limelight. It was all a bit much, you know. It's my third visit, and you'd think I'd be used to it by now, each time they give us this greeting. 
But, you know, these are the norms in Pakistani culture. And for many of you who've traveled abroad, you've probably experienced something like that. When special guests show up, this is what people do. And, you know, we have similar norms, too, if we think about it. You know, we give guests of honor, uh, we give them the seat of honor up front, don't we? You know, we make sure to give them a warm introduction from the front. We also give them gifts. Maybe we take them out to eat. We show them the sights of our city. And you even have these norms in your own home as well. When a guest arrives, if it's the winter, you're likely to offer to take their coat for them maybe. Maybe you offer them the chance to use the bathroom to freshen up. Maybe you get them a glass of cold water or you offer them a cup of hot coffee or knowing some of you, maybe something a little bit stronger, right? Well, in our gospel story today, we see a host who does the opposite, snubbing his guest. And then we see an unlikely character rectify the situation, going way beyond what was required of even the host because of the depth of gratitude she has for this particular guest. And the question we are left asking is this. Do we recognize who Jesus truly is? Because when we do, it changes everything. Do we recognize who Jesus truly is? Because when we do, it changes everything. So let's turn to our reading for today and see what Jesus would say to us through his word. You can find it on the screens. You can follow along on the inserts or the bulletins that you have there. Pull out your Bible or your Bible app. And let's follow along um, with the reading today. And to set the context for our story, this is fairly on in the ministry of Jesus. And although there's a very similar story recorded later on in the other Gospels, this is a different story, which is clear if you read them closely. It's a different incident in a different place. And what we've just seen in Luke chapter 7 is that John the Baptist's disciples have been sent by John, who's languishing in a a jail right now, rotting away there, to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, the Messiah, or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And even Jesus' cousin, John, who's known him since birth, who's known the stories about him, even he is beginning to have his doubts. Here he is locked up in Herod's jail, And he's wondering why Jesus hasn't done more yet. Isn't he the one? But Jesus points to what he has already done in his ministry so far, telling John's disciples, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. You know, there is plenty uh, to show people if they're really watching of who he is, there's plenty of proof, which brings us to today's story and further proof of who this is, if we are able to see. And this event takes place in the home of a Pharisee, a man called Simon. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, if you don't know, the Pharisees were the key religious leaders of the day, teachers of the Jewish law, and they also had political power as well. And they were this relatively small but highly influential group of people in Israel who emphasized meticulous observance of God's law, as understood from the Old Testament laws, but also from traditional extra-biblical stuff that others and they had added to the law. And this was the way that one would attain righteousness by being fully obedient in one's own strength before God and retaining his favor in this way. Now, we don't know exactly why Simon invited Jesus to dine in his home. Perhaps it's because Jesus had just preached in the local synagogue and maybe it's just the done thing to invite a traveling rabbi to a Sabbath meal. 
well, maybe he's curious about who this guy is, or maybe he likes to boast about the celebrities that he knows, because Jesus was surely a celebrity already at this stage. Now, it's even possible he has some spiritual interest, but whatever the reason, it's clear that he doesn't recognize who Jesus truly is. And also, that whoever he thinks Jesus might be, he clearly doesn't respect him. As Luke reveals through Jesus' words in verses 44 through 46, Simon has been a terrible host. Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my head, uh, my feet with ointment. Number one, Simon didn't, give, uh, didn't have Jesus' feet washed as he arrived. This was a, a, just a cultural norm that would have been expected of having a guest, something that was standard. But for him, uh, the equivalent today, no offer of refreshing himself in the bathroom, perhaps. And secondly, he doesn't greet him with a kiss, just a customary way of greeting someone who's a guest. So there would be no handshake, no hug for him. No, he's just ignored. And then thirdly, Simon doesn't anoint his head with oil, which is a recognition of who he is. Today we might give a warm introduction of, look who's here, look who's arrived, and look how honored they are, and how honored we are to have Jesus with us. And why is this? Why does he basically ignore him? Well, it's because, as we said, Jesus simply doesn't, uh, Simon simply doesn't recognize who Jesus is. He's still weighing up the possibilities. And according to verse 39, prophet seems to be one of them although he quickly dismisses that option. Also rabbi or teacher, but not Messiah, and certainly not son of God. No, Simon is blind. He's blind to who's in his presence. You know, it reminds me of a number of times that I've preached in a congregation and only at the very end realized who's in our midst. Different people who would have been far better to preach than I would have, who snuck into the church for a quiet Sunday morning. And as you walk out, you realize, oh my goodness, did I really preach that badly in front of them? <laughs> and you worry about what they would have thought. If we'd have known who was there, I would have said, you come on up. You have the seat of honor. You come preach. We want to hear what God says to you through us. Well, Simon's having one of those experiences where he doesn't recognize who is sitting in his midst. In fact, the Son of God in this case. And he dismisses him and disrespects him. And yet there's another person in that place who doesn't do that. There is a woman who fully grasps who Jesus is and what he has to offer. In verse 37, we read this, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. You know, this is a shocking event, at least to those observing it. First of all, it's a woman, right? That was shocking enough in itself that a woman would dare to do that to this person. And then we see that the woman, um, according to the Greek word used by Luke uh, for sinner, is actually likely a prostitute. Somehow, though, she's made it into this dinner. And now she takes it upon herself to do what Simon isn't willing to do. She is grieved by his disrespect of Jesus, grieved to the point of tears. 
You see, this is a man who's received her when no one else will and who's seen her for who she really is. Other men just want her for what she can offer them sexually. They have objectified her. But Jesus wants her for who she really is. He knows her as a child of God, someone made in his image and dearly loved by him. And he's forgiven her and welcomed her into his kingdom, a place where those with the highest honor are the humble and the lowly and the meek and the poor in spirit, not the most famous or the wealthiest or the most powerful or the most religious. And so while she has no water to wash his feet, her tears are flowing. And so she uses those to rub the grime and the dirt off of his feet. And while she has no towel, she decides to improvise and break cultural taboos. She reveals her hair, which would have been a total no-no in that culture. And then she starts to wipe his feet with her hair. And while she has no oil, she looks, it's quite likely she has a perfume jar around her neck. And she uses this to anoint his feet. It's this beautiful moment, this incredible act of worship right in the midst of something bad that's happened. And Simon is indignant at what takes place. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Yes, she, to him, she's broken all these religious norms, all these cultural norms, and Jesus has actually let her. And so Simon's thinking, they should both feel ashamed. They deserve our condemnation. And so Jesus, to help set him straight, shares a parable with him. Verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus uses a situation that would have been common to the people in the room. They would have known moneylenders. They would have known people who owed money. They might have owed money themselves. In this case, one person owes about a year's worth of wages. Another person owes about a month's worth of wages. But neither of them can afford to pay them back. And today we might talk about someone who owed money to a credit card company, perhaps, and they can't afford to pay back the debt. And Jesus makes the point that our sin is like a debt we cannot pay. We cannot pay it. And it doesn't matter if you think that you are better than others, and so you think, well, I owe a lot less. Or if you think you are worse than others, you think, I owe so much more. None of us can pay the debt that we owe to God. None of us, however small we think it is or however big we think it is. And I mean, many of us try to, don't we? Myself included. We do it through good things, but with wrong motives. We do it through charitable works or religious observance or even financial donations. But none of us will ever, none of us will ever do enough to earn our way into God's kingdom. No, the only way to enter his kingdom is to recognize that we need God's help. We need Jesus. We just sang about it. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. And we need to repent of our sin and accept the free gift of salvation he offers to all those who would turn to him. And I think that's a hard pill for many of us to swallow, particularly those of us who are used 
to doing things in our own strength. And maybe we live by that famous and yet unbiblical mantra of God helps those who help themselves. And that's the way Simon's certainly choosing to live. And Jesus is gently pointing it out. After all, you know, he could have walked away from this event right at the very beginning. When he was snubbed, he could have walked away. But he came on in anyway, and he chose to stay, perhaps for the sake of Simon, more than the sake of the woman. You see, her faith has already saved her. We see that in verse 50. Not her works. This incredible act of love is just a response to something that's already taken place. The forgiveness of her sins. Something Jesus makes clear in verses 47 and 48. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. You see, whether or not we like it, ultimately we've all sinned like the woman. According to Jesus' standards anyway. And according to his standards, this room today is filled with liars, adulterers, thieves, murderers, idolaters, blasphemers, hypocrites, cheats, covetors, gluttons, gossips, etc., etc. No one in this room is blameless. Not one of us. But the good news of the gospel is that if you'll repent and believe in him, you will be set free from sin and death because of what he has achieved on the cross of Calvary. He has atoned for our sin. He has paid the debt we could not pay. And so as we come to a close today, we're left by Luke with one question. Verse 49. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this? who even forgives sins. And you know, your answer to that question will determine the rest of your life, both temporal and eternal, both now and forever. You'll either recognize who Jesus is, the Son of God, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, the debt payer, the forgiver of sins, and you will see the depths of your own sin, however good you might think you are, And you'll repent and follow him, worshiping with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, like this woman, for the rest of your lives. Or you'll be blind to who he is. And you're going to try and keep on making it in your own strength, wearily making your way through this life, worshiping yourself and all kinds of other things before facing his judgment one day and hearing him say, I do not know you. I do not know you. Which will it be? Will it be the woman who recognized who Jesus truly was or the Pharisee who didn't? The woman who also recognized who she was or the Pharisee who didn't? It's much like the story we had last week from Laura, the parable of the prodigal son, the younger and the older son. And this decision will make all the difference. As one commentator puts it, what a scene Luke gives us. The woman is kneeling before Jesus. Her hair is hanging unattractively and the tears are flowing. She loves Jesus. In contrast, Simon's jaw is set. He has no love for Christ or for the poor woman. Thus, he is graceless. Like the woman, unlike Simon, forgiven people love God and God's people. Those who are forgiven much love much. We love because he first loved us. Do I, do you really love him? This is the unfailing test of our faith. Is our love for him growing? This is a sure indicator of our spiritual health.
Is your love for him growing? Is it visible for others to see, much like this woman? Are you more concerned about what he thinks than what other people think, caring less about cultural acceptance from those around you and more about his call for you to love him and to love your neighbor? Do you recognize who Jesus truly is? Because when you do, it changes everything. Today, might you know him as the Son of God and forgiver of your sins and worship him with abandon in this place and everywhere that you go. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have to say to us today. Lord, that if you are prompting us to repent of our sin and to turn to you, to seek your forgiveness, recognizing our need that we cannot do this in our own strength, would you help us to do that right here, right now, and to choose to follow you, recognizing that it will make all the difference. Come, Holy Spirit, do not let us miss this chance today to be right with you. And if we have chosen to follow you, Lord, would you um, kindle again in us that fire, that desire to love you, to be unashamedly in love with you as well, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.